Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points and we use them to try to explain the world. I am Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, with us is Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor right now in the Bahamas. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So... In the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about playgrounds, the economics of playgrounds, to be more specific. So stick around for that. But first, we're going to do something more from the news as usual. And the data point there is 99. That is $99. That is the current price of a barrel of oil, uh, which is now below the sort of psychologically decisive threshold of $100. West Texas Intermediate crude dropped 3.3% before ending the day at just below $99. Some analysts say if we saw a recession, that price could actually go down to $65 a barrel. So clearly for months, people have been talking about high oil prices, uh, you know, sanctions on Russia after its invasion of Ukraine suddenly reduced supply. That led to a bunch of policies to mitigate those high oil prices. There were gas tax holidays across the West. And that war clearly isn't over and the sanctions are still in place, but now prices are heading in the opposite direction, it seems. But also, it seems like the panic is still in effect in some ways. Uh, President Biden is about to go to Saudi Arabia to lobby for more oil. Europe is still freaking out about energy, talking about rationing, heading into the winter. Anyway, so we thought we would see how all this hangs together right now. And the first question, Adam, is I mentioned gas and oil. Prices have gone up in recent months for both of those things, but should we be keeping those two fossil fuels separate in our minds uh, rather than sort of lumping them together? Are these sort of two very different products with very different functions, very different underlying infrastructure, et cetera? Yeah, I think that's a really helpful uh, question to start with, really, because when we discuss energy, all the different sources tend to get lumped together. And in, in American parlance, in fact, for Europeans, it's very confusing. Americans call petrol gas, and then they call gas natural gas, so as to just differentiate. But they are completely different beasts, right? I mean, oil is the world's biggest global commodity, um, and it's, of course, basically used, its main function is in transport, secondarily as a chemical feedstock. It's very much less commonly used for heating or for electricity generation. So oils, if you think about coal as being the original fossil fuel that drove modern economic development, then oil displaces coal above all in the transport sector for shipping for and the displacement of railway by road and traffic, whether it's cars or trucks or whatever. So that's oil. Gas displaces coal too, but it displaces coal precisely in heating and electricity generation. So the two very different types of function, really. Gas is also used as an industrial feedstock in the chemical sector like oil. So those are where they overlap. The difference 
is crucially to do with the chemical composition, of course. They're very different beasts chemically, but also um, in terms of their density, right? So oil is dense uh, and can be relatively easily transported. So there is effectively one global market for oil, one big pool of oil. And you can tell this because the price of oil in the United States doesn't fundamentally differ from the price of oil anywhere else in the world. There is some marginal difference, but there's different grades, there's different uses of oil, there's different places it's shipped to, but the differentials are, are small. Um, and this is because of the physical properties of the stuff and the infrastructure that was created for a global market dominated increasingly by the spot market. So day to day trading in oil, which really emerges in the 1980s out of a system that used to be long term supply contracts between the Arab producers and big Western companies. So gas, unlike oil, is, is, is not dense, right? So it, you, cannot, you cannot effectively ship it. It's not worth paying the money to ship a square meter, a cubic meter of, uh, of gas around the world. The only way you can efficiently do that is if you liquefy it, which is very expensive. It requires massive high pressures and low temperatures. So only a fraction, um, just under 40% of internationally traded gas goes in the form of liquid gas, which is fungible like oil. You can ship the tankers around the world. They can go anywhere. Um, more than 60% goes through pipelines, and those create point-to-point -point connections, which you can't really easily swap, as the Europeans are discovering with Russia. Once you're bought into a pipeline gas deal, you're sort of stuck with it. So effectively, there isn't a world market for gas currently. And what we have is a series of segmented regional markets, with the East Asian price being different from the European price and the pipeline price that you get from Gazprom, if you can actually persuade Russia's Gazprom to supply you with gas, being different again from the spot market price. But most radically, this is where you really see the difference, is that there is at times a more than tenfold difference in the price that Europeans pay for natural gas and what Americans pay. And what that's basically telling you is that there's a huge pent up supply of gas in the US coming in large part from the fracking sector that cannot currently be efficiently exported. And so it swills around the American market and keeps prices very low. And all of the new LNG terminals that are being built in the Gulf of Mexico, one of their functions is, is to open, as it were, the tap on this gas. And that will flood the global market with more LNG, bringing prices down. But it will also raise the gas price in the US because if you're know, only being offered $3 or whatever um, for a certain unit of gas, you can get much more on the global market. And so infrastructure is being built to make gas more like oil. But we are years away from that being a reality. I mean, it does make it sound like being a consumer of gas is much less attractive because you're sort of dependent on whatever infrastructure you have that connects you to a supplier, whereas this oil market is much more than, yeah, flexible, I guess. That's the attraction of building LNG import terminals, which the Europeans are suddenly discovering, and then pipelines to connect them. See, and that's the direction of travel in Europe right now. It's not necessarily to consume more gas, but to be able to consume it on more favorable terms. The problem is you're competing with the great East Asian markets. It wasn't the Europeans that invented LNG, it was Japan, because obviously you can't send pipelines to Japan, like you're surrounded by this deep ocean water. So Japan imports gas and has since the late 60s in the form of LNG. And when you go head to head with Asian, East Asian economies like Japan and China in a market, like it's a very uncomfortable position to be in, which is where Europe has been really since 2021. So it's not the silver bullet, but it does at least mean you're not totally dependent on Russia. So to turn back to oil, I mean, is there more oil, in fact, out there that can be pumped and sold? Is there spare capacity uh, out there to increase supply of oil? I mean, if you look at the very long run, right, there, there really isn't any reason, I think, from an economic point of view to fear peak oil or running out of oil, right? I mean, 
uh, you can project an ultimate shortage, sure, but as uh, Sheikh Ahmed Zaki Yamani of Saudi Arabia, the, the legendary Saudi oil negotiator, said, right, the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones. The Stone Age ended because they found something better to do, you know, some better, they, they invented uh, iron and bronze and, and other types of tool. The problem right now is that uh, is the lacking investment in the fossil fuel, in particular the oil sector in recent years. And that means that we do currently face capacity constraints. And the question really is what has driven that fall in investment? And from an economic point of view, overwhelmingly, the most uh, important explanation is clearly the collapse in oil prices in 2014. And um, some people like to blame green politics and point to the fact that the decline in investment coincided with the rise of global climate politics, the 2015 Paris deal. But I, I, and frankly, I wish that were true, that climate politics had that kind of influence. But um, as an in explanation of why investment fell in 2014, it, it doesn't really hold water. It may help to explain why some Western and particularly European oil majors like Shell and BP have not made huge investments since then. But it doesn't explain the fall, the original fall. And particularly if you consider that the really big producers in the world are not Western oil majors, right? It's Saudi Aramco, it's the Gulf producers. And there, what's much more important is that from 2014 onwards, as oil prices fall, they had to trade off the fiscal needs of their governments, social welfare spending, other types of investment against investment in their oil industries. And they just ran investment down in their oil industries. And the net effect of that is that even Saudi Aramco, which is the powerhouse of global oil, you know, forget Exxon and all of these Western players, Saudi Aramco is the really big whale. They don't think they can raise output by as much as a million barrels a day before 2027. So we're really talking about quite sticky supply. We think maybe there's excess capacity of about 800,000 barrels now, spare capacity, which is really not a lot for dealing with shocks. And that's what's driving the that's what's driving the nervousness in markets right now. The prices will fluctuate up and down depending on how people think the business cycle is going and they're slightly off their peaks now because China is you know, potentially heading into a recession, which is the big source of new demand. But overall, the market looks tight for the foreseeable future. And how are these oil producers responding to the sort of high prices that they're having now and presumably high profits? Are those getting reinvested in uh, more capacity or uh, are those just going sort of into shareholder pockets. That's the really interesting thing on the other, the third factor in the global oil market. So there's the Saudi and, and the Gulf producers, there's Russia, which is obviously in a problematic position right now because of, of its aggression, its attack on Ukraine. And the third factor is the shale industry in the United States, which came on stream dramatically in the last decade. And for the period up to 2014 and beyond, it was the swing producer. So whenever prices went up, there would be a surge in US oil production. It's a very short cycle as well. You can rapidly ramp up shale production. And what's been really interesting in the current cycle is despite the fact that profits are high, really, we haven't seen that that acceleration. Part of this is to do with refinery capacity in the US, which fell quite dramatically in 2020-21. But there's also real hesitancy in shale. Why? Because during the phase of expansion, they just didn't make any money. And Wall Street has really begun actually to ask them to turn a profit. And that slows down your ability to invest in new, in new wells. Um, so there is a, a constraint there also from the side of, of um, capitalism, if you like. And it's, it's been extraordinary to watch the Biden administration banging on the door of Wall Street saying, no, you know, production is the priority now because, quote unquote, we're in a wartime situation, which is how they've taken to describing the situation in light of Russia's attack on Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, to get to this wartime scenario, I mean, here in Germany right now, the government is talking about the need for rationing of energy this coming winter. Obviously, Germany gets much of its gas from Russia. Russia is threatening to turn off the taps. 
But this got me wondering about government's ability to even ration uh, the, the gas in this way. I mean, is there even the bureaucratic capacity of, of governments these days to do this kind of uh, a wholesale rationing? Not right now. And they're scrambling to develop it because I think they can see a big problem coming for the fall and the winter. And they're going to need that kind of bureaucratic capacity. You need to collect the information. You need to have the communication channels in place. You need to have contingency plans in the plants where you're going to do the shutdowns. And they're going to focus this on industry because there's obviously a political imperative and just a social imperative to maintain household supply at all costs. I mean, it is not easy to do, but it's not uncommon if you live in emerging market economies, they do it all the time. It's called load shedding. In fact, you know, we're recording this call from from the Abaco Islands in the Bahamas, thanks to by the grace of like the, the constant management of our local power supply, which is a huge issue. And they simply shed bits of the island from the grid when they have to maintain stability. Um, in China and in India, this happens also. Beyond technical capacity, the really big test in Germany in particular is going to be the politics of this, because if you're going to do this on a serious scale, you're going to have to cut out large industrial consumers of gas. And that is politically difficult to do. You need people who are on board to help manage this. And that will be, apart from the technocratic expertise, it'll but building that political coalition will be crucial. We, we have our economics minister here just distributing new tips every day on how to save energy in our homes, how to uh, 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 take shorter showers, he's telling us, to take colder showers. Well, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it, it, yeah, it, it will help. And, and, and you know, every, every little bit counts. But that's different. Like asking people to economize on their consumption is precisely so as to avoid outright rationing. Outright rationing is when they tell you you've got X amount of power, or you've only got power until 9 p.m. Or you can, you know, that's the scenario which will be much better implemented in the industrial sector where it can be treated in an aggregate way. Got it. Well, to shift to the United States, I'm curious what this sort of period of high oil prices has revealed about the Biden administration and specifically its climate policy. Obviously, uh, 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 Biden and his team have been doing everything in their power to lower oil prices, including this pending trip to Saudi Arabia, a state that previously he was vowing to make a pariah, but now he's uh, going hat in hand. Do these efforts to lower oil prices kind of contradict all these promises on climate that Biden had been making? I mean, shouldn't high prices of fossil fuels like oil and gas, shouldn't that be something that a government with an ambitious climate agenda would actually embrace? Yeah, I mean, on its face, frankly, I think it's a declaration of bankruptcy and with regard to climate policy. Yes, obviously, high prices of fossil fuels should be welcomed. You know, not out loud. You're not going to go out on the street and celebrate uh, because it's obviously politically difficult and dangerous in the US to do that. Uh, but to do what they've been doing, which is essentially to maneuver and to, to use every lever of the American state power. I mean, they started last year bullying OPEC+, plus, which is including Russia, into increasing production. And when that failed... You know, they started leveraging uh, their pressure on, on the shale industry. And now, indeed, as you say, they're, they're engaging in this humiliating climb down on their stance uh, with regard to, to MBS and the Saudi regime. I mean, so, so defenders of the Biden administration say that this is like a short term measure to hold things in line. You know, and one obviously can sympathize with the fact that they're in a midterm. And, and that would make sense if there was much prospect of the Biden administration surviving politically, then being able to actually conduct climate policy so that you'd have a short term trade off for a long term goal. But, but as we know, their, their actual legislative agenda is completely in tatters. 
build back better as being killed by opposition from within the ranks of the Democratic Party itself, given the roadblock the Republicans put up. And now we have the Supreme Court ruling on the EPA as a regulator, which is the alternative route. So what we're actually looking at here is not, as it were, a tactical maneuver so much as the Biden administration falling in with a kind of comprehensive rollback of a um, climate agenda on, on every front, stalling in Congress, an attack from the Supreme Court and an administration publicly committing itself to trying to maintain the promise of low petrol prices for American consumers. It's really disastrous, I think, as a, as a configuration. Yeah, I mean, as long as I can remember the need for cheap oil and, and low energy prices in the United States has always been justified sort of on the grounds of cheap gas is needed for the American way of life. And I, yeah, I guess that leads to my last question, which is, yeah, is that just the underlying premise of American life that just Americans can't be asked to sacrifice their, their use of energy? You, you could, in a more general sense, say that it's typical of settler colonial states like Canada, Australia, Brazil, Russia, in fact, all pretty much share the same idea that these resources are there to be exploited. And so there's something unnatural about refusing to do it. And there is a particular American version of this, but all, all of those countries exhibit a sort of similar ideology almost of energy consumption. But it's also, of course, crucial to say that, that this is a promise never realized for the majority of Americans, right? The vast majority of Americans do not live in a world of superabundant energy. They actually de facto really do face very serious trade-offs. If you're a low-income American household that has to commute to work in an inefficient American car, then rising gas prices, petrol prices really are an issue for you. Um, and you don't have very many alternatives because there isn't good public infrastructure and public transport. And so really, if this promise is true for anyone, it's for the top you know, 10% of American society. And, and if, you, if you said that um, the American state was, it, was there for the purpose of ensuring that they could maximize their energy consumption, I think it would, you know, it's just unambiguously true. It screams out of the data. You know, it's the upper middle class Americans with big you know, four-car garages, motor yachts, uh, you know, frequent flyer accounts, 10,000 square foot houses with air conditioning. That's really where the mega consumption goes on. The top 10% of American households in terms of income emit per capita 68.8 tons of CO2 per year. That's you know, more than 30 times what uh, would enable us to achieve something like balance by 2050. And they are far and away the most heavily consuming group in the world's um, I would describe the vast majority of Americans as caught within a social structure and a social fabric, which doesn't really give them much alternative. Uh, and very few of them have the privilege of, you know, really living at the level that folks would aspire to. We will leave it there and uh, come back in a second to talk about playgrounds. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And 
I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is 1.9 million. That's $1.9 million. That is the average cost of a new playground in the District of Columbia in Washington in the United States. So we're aware that playgrounds are not the most natural topic for an economics podcast. It was really hard for me to get data on this subject. But it did come up when one of our producers mentioned she was moving abroad with her family. And I was telling how one of the advantages of living in Germany with my kids has been the sort of plentiful and very impressive playgrounds here. And then Adam chimed in to say this would be a good podcast segment. So here we are. We're going to show how economic ideas even permeate our toys and playgrounds. So let's start, Adam, with, I guess, the question of how big is the global market for playground equipment in the first place? And I guess I wonder, is it even a global market to begin with? I mean, would it be more accurate to think of it as breaking down into individually regulated national markets or or is there really a kind of leading global producer of playground equipment yeah no this um this episode uh, is from my part anyway dedicated to my my daughter edie who's now far too big to to playgrounds but um like like cam i have very fond memories of visiting berlin and spending hours on the extraordinarily creative play spaces they have there for kids all over the city and uh, she i mean she still remembers it to this day um yeah, I think we're kind of we're exploring the outer edges here, really, aren't we, of the uh, the realm of uh, economic data and economic analysis. It's not easy to come up with a, an answer to this question of what the global spend is. There are industrial associations, market research companies that will offer you numbers. And the one that I've found is a figure of about 5 billion, 5.170 billion for the global playground equipment market. So that's a fair size, isn't it? I mean, I guess it follows from the kind of figure that you were quoting, Cam, for a, a playground project in a city like Washington, D.C. Are they expected to grow? Unsurprisingly, these market research reports tend to project that. So this one tends to say it's going to be 8.2 billion in 2028. One of the things that's driving that is that playgrounds 
originate in the West. They originate in Europe and the United States in the late 19th century. And one of the things the producers are salivating over is the fact that Asian city planners and the housing project developers are discovering the playground and are adding it uh, in. And so as Asia urbanizes, they're expecting big markets there. There are a bunch of large-scale playground equipment manufacturers in Europe, in the United States. At least those are the ones which are well covered by this kind of market research. I'm sure there are local producers as well. But um, in terms of, it's a highly regulated industry, as you'd expect, because um, the central issue with all of this is the balance between risk and safety for kids. So there's a quite big differences here. And, and the, the, the best, unsurprisingly, the sort of the most standardized, comprehensively regulated market is the European one. This is the so-called Brussels effect. This is the kind of thing that the EU does well, you know, figure out intelligent rules for this kind of public amenity. In the US, it appears to be largely a state-driven thing. So not federal government, but state-level regulators set standards for things like um, the safety for falling from equipment. There's a lot of attention right now paid to um, surfaces that kids fall onto. And there's a very interesting mm. calculus of if you make the playground look safer, will more kids injure themselves because they'll do more daring stunts? But um, yeah, about five billion maybe growing um, as uh, the whole playground culture and the idea spreads around the increasingly rich world. Uh, so... Is it possible to say what role legal liability plays in the sorts of playgrounds that get designed and built around the world? I mean, are different legal cultures legible in the types of playground and the types of playground equipment that get built? This is a, an area which, may we say, is as it were on the, the outer edges of research. So I'm not sure that we have strongly you know, uh, verified social science theories about the way in which playgrounds have been shaped by legal liability structure. But, but there is data and there, in fact, have been global NGOs which have conducted rather large scale investigations into this because educators uh, think playgrounds are actually essential for children's well-being and, and, and development. So there's a lot of research in Europe on this. And and first of all, it's just worth saying that playgrounds are basically relatively safe. So if you have a contact sport, so it's the European equivalent of American football is rugby, you're 50 times more likely to have your child injured if your boy or girl plays you know, competitive rugby than if they go to the playgrounds, right? It's, it's, it's vastly, vastly more dangerous to do that. Or in Canada, you know, hockey and skating, which are basically popular sports there, generate 10 times as many hospital visits for concussion as playground equipment does. So those swings and roundabouts and all of the climbing equipment may look hazardous. They're nowhere near as hazardous as playing those kind of contact sports. It is also clearly true that in litigious countries where you have high liability costs in general, like the United States, where liability costs are by some estimate run to as much as 1.6, 1.7% of GDP. So hmm. throughout the medical system and so on, they're absolutely huge. There are substantial bills for legal liability arising from playground injuries. So apparently New York City paid out $20 million annually, roughly speaking, for injuries to New York kids on New York's by no means abundant play, play facilities. But that's only that's less than half of 1% of the city's total liability bill for the year. So again, it's not a huge issue. But I think there is no doubt that it, whereas in Europe, there has been a progressive push towards a more permissive attitude, a deliberate effort to balance risk and liability. In the US, what we've tended to see is an increasingly restrictive attitude both, I think, through injury, but also the pervasive fear of child abduction in the United States, which is really incredibly powerful. 
And as a parent in two societies, moving back and forth between the US and Europe, one of the most striking differences is that in Europe, kids play relatively freely, unsupervised in the evenings in hmm. many towns and cities of Europe. You'll see gangs of kids running around with no adults present, um, which is quite difficult to imagine in certainly upper middle class uh, suburban neighborhoods in the United States today. The percentage of kids who play outdoors freely compared to their, their parents is, is radically lower in modern America than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So yes, there do appear to be major differences in risk perception and indeed legal consequences. A brief anecdote on that last point. My son just started going to school this year, and actually he takes a school bus because the school is a bit further away than our neighborhood. And he started at the age of five this year, and, and early in the year, uh, I didn't make it to his bus stop in time, and the bus driver just let him off the bus you know, sort of 10 minutes from, from home and drove away, which in the United States would be cause for, you know, headlines in the newspaper but uh, this driver just didn't think twice about you know sort of just wait for your dad on the street you'll be you'll be there eventually you gotta gotta keep going um so yes very different <laughs> cultures when it comes to uh, abduction fears for sure anyway to get back to the united states you know obviously we all know the united states welfare state is not as robust as it is in europe i mean is that also an area where you can sort of tell from the playgrounds that get built is playground equipment more heavily tilted towards private investment in backyards in the United States rather than more equitable social investment in parks? Well, again, I struggled somewhat to find data specifically on playgrounds in the classic sense, swings, slides, sandpits, all that kind of thing. But if you take playground in the more extended sense, then there is indeed a huge and glaring difference between the United States and Europe, and it, it acts particularly on the politics of the welfare state, and that's in swimming pools. If you think of, of German society, um, Germans take large resort-style public swimming pools for granted with several, generally speaking, two or three Olympic-sized swimming pools, um, very cheap access, basically the main form of childcare for many families during the summer in German cities. And um, America used to have pools like that in the late 19th and early 20th century. And they were initially segregated by sex, male and female. And then from the early 1900s, no longer, but of course, always segregated by race. And so in big cities with extremely hot summers like St. Louis, you had magnificent estate style, literally like pleasure resort pools with beaches and slides and the whole works, exactly the sort of thing that you would take for granted in, in Europe. But as the politics of race became more and more active in the 30s, 40s and 50s, and then desegregation began in the aftermath of World War II, those pools were systematically and rigorously closed and replaced by private uh, swimming pools. And that process was obviously legally contentious because the racial logic of this was absolutely transparent. White people did not want to share swimming pools with black people. And in particular, they did not want white girls sharing black pools with black men. So the racial and gender politics of this overlapped in an absolutely crass way. There were notorious, violent demonstrations by white people trying to keep black fellow citizens out of pools in the 50s and 60s. And the Supreme Court, to its undying shame, endorsed this in 1971 with a ruling which said that so long as cities closed pools for both black and white people, uh, they were doing equal harm to, literally that's the phrase, equal harm to both groups of citizens. And so there was no prima facie reason to stop them engaging in this odious practice of rolling back um, public provision of leisure facilities for citizens, essentially so as to pander to the, the crass racism of the white population. 
Um, and that, if you, you know, had one single, if you had only one word to explain why America does not have a comprehensive welfare state, it would be that same word. It would be race. If you ask why America does not have comprehensive healthcare, dental cover, all of the sorts of things that many European societies take for granted, the single most obvious explanation for it is that white people object to paying for services which they expect uh, their black fellow citizens to use more intensively than them. And uh, it's it's harsh and brutal, but the history, historical record on this is just completely unambiguous. So finally, what about the economics of child's play itself? What kind of economic lessons might kids be learning on playgrounds in the first place? Are they learning maybe risk-taking? About Are they maybe learning about the arbitrariness of conventional rules? You tell me, Adam, what kind of economics can kids learn on the playground? I think it's interesting that we pose it as a question of economics because playground architecture and play as a sort of project of education has a history which it isn't really originally economic so much as a question of personality and even politics, right? So Fribel, who is generally seen as the inventor, I think, you know, he's the inventor of the first kindergarten of early childhood education, was a great student of Rousseau and thought of play as being, you know, he has those sort of those uh, creative kits of like strange objects which children assemble into shapes, at least notionally that's what they do. And then John Dewey, who, who, who like Fribble, was a, was a student of, of Rousseau, thought of play also as being a kind of formative project for, but for him too, it was largely, I think, about citizenship, about personality development, about cognitive development in the broader sense. We really do begin to see, though, the intersection of play culture with economics in a really direct way in the 1990s and the, in thinking about new types of economy that are emerging at that point. And the point of intersection is, is the notion not so much of risk-taking then, but of creativity. And from the late 90s onwards into the early 2000s, uh, with the culture sector becoming more and more dominant, especially in advanced economies, there really does see this sort of emergence of the idea that creative play is essential to the development of certain sorts of economic capacity. And then, you know, all of a sudden you have these workplaces um, full of games and not just for relaxation, but also for the development of teams. And I think there are two different mm. notions there. One is of the collective of communication, which you, which you learn through play. And the other is the unlocking of creativity, this mysterious ingredient in economic growth without which you don't get innovation. And, and so there really is a meaningful intersection here between notions of economic potential and notions of and, and concepts of play, which has become more and more prominent since the 1990s. And it takes two versions, one of which is the highly educationally, pedagogically focused, you know, serious notion of play, which is more dominant in many Asian societies and uh, in the upper middle class, you know, highly driven, ambitious uh, elite groups in, in Western societies. But then on the other hand, this rather offsetting notion of a kind of freedom, childlike freedom, which unlocks potentials which aren't otherwise accessible. And so, yeah, capitalism has become you know, sort of coterminous with and linked to um, these notions of uh, childhood development in quite, an, in quite an important way. Yeah, it does seem like there's all sorts of ways of interacting and cooperating and thinking about structures and rules that people learn on playgrounds, which, which is not unrelated to economics, I, I guess. No, because, I mean, in the end, the economy mobilizes subjectivity, doesn't it? It mobilizes who we are. Its most radical ambition is to 
is to mobilize the fourth person. <laughs> you know, I mean, really. And, and, uh, and that's what we do uh, on this podcast. Fourth... That brings it back to the podcast. That's what we do here. We unveil all of the facets of economics on here. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we will leave it there. And yeah, we'll be back next week. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone from local fishers to nuclear physicists on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. 
or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.